Between the years of 1881 and 1884, the United States launched an expedition to the Arctic, headed by Lieutenant Adolphus W. Greeley. It was an ambitious undertaking for that era, or any other. It set out to overwinter two dozen men a thousand miles north of the Arctic Circle. Scientific observations were to be made and specimens collected from this area 250 miles north of the last known settlements of Eskimo peoples. Like the moon race of our century, there was some national pride invested in the undertaking. The group was to attempt the farthest penetration of the frozen landscape in the direction of the North Pole. As it would turn out, the expedition did advance our knowledge of the Arctic environment, but the cost of doing so would prove steep indeed. Author Buddy Levy is clinical professor of English at Washington State University. Professor Levy has seven books to his credit, including several bestsellers. He has generally written about unusual adventures by people who were themselves rather out of the ordinary. He's also participated in the production of documentary films in the same vein. And so it is he's authored a book about the Greeley expedition. It is titled Labyrinth of Ice, the Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Exploration. We hope to talk with him about it momentarily. Buddy Levy has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Publishers Weekly. He was the co-star in 25 episodes of History Channel's docu-series, Decoded. As a freelance journalist, he's covered adventure sports and lifestyle-slash-travel subjects around the world. You probably never heard of this chapter of 19th century exploration, dear listener. I know I had not, but the story that unfolds in Labyrinth of Ice is a remarkable one. They barely avoided total disaster. We're pleased to have its author with us today to discuss what went wrong, but also what went right about this ill-fated exploration of the barren and dangerous north. Professor Buddy Levy, thank you for taking the time to join us here at Radio Parallax. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What led you to write about this expedition, which has by now sort of been largely forgotten by history? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I, it was one of these um, relatively um, unusual backwards um, connections. I, I had, I had, and I say that because I normally conspire to write a book and then I go to the place that I'm going to write about and do this immersive research, which is my mo, and it provides a great deal of uh, pretty interesting travel. But in this case, I actually went to Greenland first, and I was. This was in a about 2003, I went to Greenland and I was covering this um, blind adventurer named Eric Weinmayer, uh, who was competing. He was the first blind person to, to summit Mount Everest, and um, I, I was following him and embedded in his team across these um, barren landscapes of Greenland, climbing mountains and um, going into these fjords. And uh, I got so transfixed by the region that I started reading more widely about polar exploration up there. And then I came across the story of the Greeley expedition. And so it was just, I mean, it was such a thrilling and unbelievable undertaking that I kind of kept collecting everything I had read about it. And then um, a number, a couple of years ago, uh, my agent had been in contact with an editor who was really fascinated with polar exploration and off I went. Well, there's quite a few books out there about these polar explorers. Uh, they, 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 they seem to be rather romantic figures. Did you want to tell this tale in a way that differed from some of those other books? Well, yeah, I, I think so, in the sense that this, this expedition it was quite different. Um, 
certainly there was um, there's a combination of, of science and exploration and discovery, which I think is really compelling, especially at the time, you know. And so, you know, the purposes of the Greeley expedition were to go up there and establish this research station, which was a really bold um, and ambitious uh, consortium of, of research stations that were circumnavigating the Arctic polar region. Uh, and Greeley's was the farthest north of them all, and it was, you know, the most, they, they were at the time the most northerly inhabited community of people on the globe. And so, in, in addition to that, they were going to try to break this long held record of farthest north, which was a bit of a secret goal of Greeley's, but their primary purpose was to conduct scientific experiment, experimentation. And so I found that all really um, compelling, in addition to of course, the the survival element of it, oh, which yeah. ends up being profound. Well, what struck me in reading Labyrinth of Ice was what little experience this team had in the Arctic and what sort of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants arrangements were made for their resupply and, and if needed, rescue. Were, were you surprised in your research to learn how haphazard some of these arrangements seemed? Well, I mean, the more I read about it, I, I certainly don't think Greeley was haphazard. Um, you know, he was an Army man who was really dutiful about orders. And so the plans themselves were very um, well orchestrated and um, and well conceived. The problem is, I think, their knowledge of the, um, the gateway to get there through these narrow channels that were subsequently blocked by ice, um, I don't think they, they understood completely. And by they, I mean, um, when Greeley and his men first went up there in this ship, the Proteus, they they had clear sailing, and there wasn't very much ice blocking their passage. And so um, the subsequent resupply missions that were meant to bring them food and also um, correspondence, uh, they had much more trouble than anyone ever anticipated. And so, yeah, I think at that point, you know, because communication is so difficult, um you can't make adjustments the way we are able to now. And so things went south. Well, I was amazed to read about your describing buffalo skin, sleeping bags, uh, gloves made of seal skin. Uh, it was a far cry from the high-tech cold weather gear that we have today, that's for sure. I mean, it has worked very well for the, the um, native Utah and Inuit people. Um, sure. And, you know, what, what I think really was trying to be pretty adaptive, um, they picked up some of that gear en route uh, in Greenland, and certainly they they use the knowledge and experience of two Greenlandic um, men who were their primary sledge dog drivers and hunters. And so Greeley was really, I think, open to figuring out how to travel. And, and you know, also he had read widely about expeditions prior, uh, both the, the things that had gone well, and also the, the very daunting uh, knowledge that, that 50% crew losses were sort of average at that time. <laughs> so it was pretty harrowing. Well, I know that you're an admirer of Greeley and, 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 and Wally accomplished, but when I read the book, I was sort of struck by the fact that they, they take a bunch of Army guys. Funny, because I look at the, the expedition in sort of two, two main parts, and that's the life at Fort Conger, which, you know, they, they went up uh, there and they set up this really elaborate fort that was comfortable, double-walled, 65-foot-long longhouse, 
um, with, you know, they had, they had coal seam uh, that they could get coal for their stoves. And so for the first two years, while they were meant to get resupplied and then, and then they were meant to get picked up by a 200-foot-long steamship. So the intention was never for them uh, really to have to do the kind of open-water expeditionary descent that they ultimately had to do. But I think you're right. When you're going to be in this place, uh, having some more nautical experience would certainly have benefited um, Greeley and his men. Once So once they retreat from Fort Conger, that's when they're on the open water and, and being in, encroached upon by giant icebergs, and that's where uh, things really became just incredibly a matter of survival. Yeah, and I hope listeners will take a, take a look at the World Globe at some time and see that this Fort Conger was up pretty much near the tip of Greenland. I mean, it's about as far as you can go and still be on land. Uh, Greeley had enough timber, as you say, to put some decent lodging for his men. But I'm gathering that, you know, no one had tried to overwinter that far north and that the darkness itself was just a trying experience. Oh, well, I'm really glad you bring that up because, you know, when you talk about this expedition uh, or any expedition to that region, most people think of, and rightfully, you know, the temperatures that plunge to 75 below zero, the the hurricane force winds that blow to nearly 100 mile per hour. But one of the most um, difficult problems was that this polar darkness where around October 15th the sun goes below the horizon, and then at that latitude, it doesn't come up again uh, for four months. And so Greeley really understood the difficulties of this, what they call the long night. And it's, um, you know, you're in close proximity to one another, plus it's dark all day long. (laughs) And so there's going to be infighting, and, um, you know, people are seasonally affected by that, even today, by that kind of darkness in winter. And so can imagine they they call it polar madness and <laughs> there were some really close calls where people went walk about and just sort of uh, lost their minds you know and yeah. really was really was really good about keeping them busy occupied both mentally and physically yeah, I know that as NASA today studies, you know, what it's going to take to put some people on a ship and you know, have them go to Mars or whatever, they they, uh, they they examine the people that have to, they're stuck down in Antarctica, you know, in, in darkness. And, right. um, and of course, in, in this voyage, there is no shortage of interpersonal conflicts adding to the danger, which, which you document at some length. I found that to be really um, remarkable uh, that they were able to maintain the kind of cohesiveness that they did. I mean, there were certainly close calls. There was a, a couple of um, attempted mutinies that only the clear heads of certain uh, members of the expedition managed to thwart. Uh, and and then, you know, once they got, they made this 250-mile trek from Fort Conger south to where they thought that there was going to be um, resupply and, and rescue ships and food, then once they're there, again, they're just clinging to their necessities. And it was really kind of remarkable, their abilities to to be cohesive and not to, to, to go sort of Lord of the Flies on each other, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I found that to be really a testament to not only Greeley's leadership, but to some of the other men who were quite heroic. Well, food, or lack of it, uh, would become second only to the elements uh, in the dangers to survival. Uh, 
It became apparent at one point, you note in the book, to, to Lieutenant Green, that at least one member of the group was not starving to the same degree as the other ones and was, in fact, stealing food, and Greeley had to make a pretty tough decision on how to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I was th- this this character you referenced, this this historical figure. You know, you, you have to think about this. People are are on uh, by the time they arrive to this place called Cape Sabine, which was, I mean, it's one of the the most incredible adventure and survival stories that I've ever encountered in, in history. And and to get there from Fort Conger, it included a you know over a month long stay on a very small iceberg where they're just floating alone and being buffeted by winds and tides. And when they finally make it to this um, sort of gravelly spit, you know, they they know how much food they have and they know how long it might last them. So they go into these severe rations and they notice after a couple of months that this one gentleman is, you know, he weighs about 200 pounds and everyone else is beginning to become emaciated. And so they're like, wait a minute, why, why is this dude, um, you know, so beefy? And and not only that, at this now they realize that they're not going to know. It would take three or four of them to, to really subdue him because he's so much stronger. So you're right. There's a there's a really tense sequence where um, Greeley's having to determine, um, you know, if if he's been stealing food, which it looks like he has, the the punishment is execution. But what will execution do to the morale of the of the of the rest of the men? And right. so it's pretty. It's pretty gnarly. Good, good God, yes. I want to talk about more about, about about food in a minute, but but we should note that there's there's some great heroes in this whole story, and what maybe maybe foremost among them is Greeley's wife Henrietta. After the resupply effort was unsuccessful, there was a feeling in Washington by at least some that a rescue is just going to risk more lives from men who are you know almost surely lost. But she got some allies. She managed to get a, a rescue launched anyway. And it was important. She wanted to make sure it got, it got off early earlier in the year and it, it it made it made a huge difference to you know the men's odds of being rescued right well i yeah Henrietta Greeley is a an amazing woman and um you're right i mean it would be akin to us um sending you know people to to mars or the moon now and then and knowing that they're there and knowing that they may still be alive but we haven't heard from them for a while and the government saying, well, yeah, it's, it's a little too dangerous for us to go get them. So maybe we'll just sort of um, wait and see what happens. And Henrietta <laughs> Greeley was having none of that. And so you're right. She, she ends up, you know, con, um, getting this national attention by talking to a bunch of folks in, in um, the news media that she knew, writing editorials. And so she gets kind of a... A national frenzy going with uh, a, a, a call to go help get them, um, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned heroes because uh, she she's certainly surfaces as one of them, but there were others too, and I and I mean not only those men who ultimately from the navy uh, go in the ships to try to find Greeley and, and the rest of his crew, but a few of. Greeley's men, um, I mean, I found one of, you know, there were a number of times where I actually just wept while writing this book because of the the heroism and selflessness of a few of these men, in particular, David Brainerd, his sort of, you know, right-hand man, and then this photographer named George Rice, who time and again, they, they determined that they are going to go out on these forays um, in very dangerous conditions over ice that might 
be breaking through and try to find um, food caches that have been that they believe have been left. You know, in, where a hundred number a few hundred pounds of of frozen meat would mean the difference between them starving to death or surviving potentially. Right. And so I was really um, you know just blown away by the the courage of some of these men to know I'm going out for a week, you know, to try to go find food in a in just a blizzard conditions uh and and the chances of survival are pretty grim and and you know these moments where they just ski away or you know trek away on um the sledges with um you know with their friends and and pulling these sledges in their shoulders because the dogs are gone now and it's just really moving we're speaking with author Buddy Levy about his book, Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition. You know, I have to, I have to address the, what I found the most shocking aspect of your book, which, which may explain why this expedition was sort of buried in history, um, is the fact that despite the starvation the men were undergoing, there was this taboo against consuming the flesh of those who had died. And yet, and, and, and a huge scandal erupted when they... Survivors made it back, and it got reported that some of the corpses had pieces of flesh removed. Now, to me, it seems insane they would not have resorted to this to save themselves under such desperate conditions, but that's just not how it was viewed in the late 1800s. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and, and, um, you know, I think um, we have to, I'm glad that you look at that through the lens of history versus just through what, you know, someone else might do. I mean, I think modern modern audiences, most people have asked, you know, um, what would they do? Would they resort to cannibalism? Um, I think it's much less a taboo now, um, but certainly, you know, there were religious and social mores uh, prohibiting the behavior. Uh, and, you know, what ended up happening was that there was this huge, you're right, I mean, this huge scandal marred uh, some of the um, maybe the accomplishments that uh, the scientific ones that Greeley and his men um, discovered and not only in the geologic and ge- geographical discoveries they made. Um, but there was also a controversy of whether or not it actually happened because Greeley and the survivors never fu- never fully admitted to it. They said yeah. some of the corpses, uh, when they were exhumed and, and brought back, they did have um, pieces of flesh missing, but there was some discussion about whether or not that the flesh was being used for these shrimp bait, uh, to, to bait the shrimp traps so uh-huh. that they could catch the, the shrimps that were keeping them alive for a couple of months. Uh-huh. So it's not, it's a little inconclusive. Well, I know in the 1970s when the Uruguayan soccer team went down and they had to resort to cannibalism, and at first there was a scandal, and, and, and they, they came forward and said, what were we supposed to do? And everybody kind of went, okay, yeah, you see, you see your point. point. Yeah, like, what would you do? You yeah. know, and so... Um, yeah, it's quite. Yeah, yeah, I think times do do change, and and our um, position on it changes. But there's no question that um, that it certainly uh, created you know all of these headlines on their arrival home, yeah. and many of them were you know highly sensationalized, um, saying that you know they had killed members of the expedition and eaten them, you know, which didn't happen. Right. Right. Well, were there some aspects of this expedition uh, that, that, that shocked you? I mean, besides this whole cannibalism issue? Maybe the the U.S. government's um, inability to, or like sort of foot dragging uh, was a bit shocking. I mean, I, I get it when right. you think about the cost, but 
um, there were there were a series of blunders in trying to go resupply them that were that ended up being their undoing really rather than than Greeley's. Uh, you know, a lot of times he gets criticized for making the decision to leave Fort Conger, but the plan he was following pretty strict orders, and um, he fully believed that that the ships that were supposed to resupply would have left food where they said they would, and there were some huge blunders on that front. Um, and you know, yeah. what I loved about writing the book was that. Um, You've got Greeley and the men descending from Fort Conger in this incredible survival odyssey. And then you've got these, you can, I was able to cut and leave them where they were in these perilous positions and then cut to these rescue attempts that were trying to go get them. Right. And sometimes they were, they were very close to one another. And then these, these rescues ended up having their own set of debacles. Right. And, yeah, it was rescues on top of rescues. Yeah. Uh, and so it's quite dramatic. A lot of twists and turns in this book, I should tell our listeners. It's uh, it's quite a story. Uh, we're interested these days, of course, in, in what climate change is doing to the Arctic, and, and most of the scientific data from that expedition did get saved. And it, uh, I guess my question, are these especially valuable observations uh, given our current efforts? Yeah, they certainly are. And um, they what's, what's cool is that um, there are, you know, academics and research, research institutes that have, um, you know, compiled the databases. Greeley ended up writing a, something like a 1,500-page um, report that includes the, the 500 or so recordings per day that he and his men were, were taking, all sorts of things about, you know, sea ice and movement and barometric pressure and, and water temperature. It's just remarkable. And, you know, they're using them to as a, as a database and a baseline by which to compare where we are today. And there's actually a huge expedition out currently called the Mosaic that um, is really amazing, and it's, it's drifting in the sea ice uh, and, and taking modern readings of all this stuff. And so you do have this, this um, really detailed database. Well, I, I know that you uh, find uh, uh, Lieutenant Greeley an admirable figure. Uh, he had to accomplish a great deal. What, what would you find most admirable? I think he's a national hero, actually, um, he, he, because he survives this ordeal. And, I mean, that's a bit of a spoiler, but there it is. He, but, you know, he goes on to um, win the Congressional Medal of Honor, um, one of only, I think, I think at the time, and only when he won it, only he and, and Charles Lindbergh won the Congressional Medal of Honor for non-war time activities. And he goes on to found the um, National Geographic Society and the Explorers Club. So uh, certainly his contemporaries uh, understood that he was just an amazing explorer and, and also, um, you know, career military man and, and um, patriot. So I think all of those things combined make him just a a really important American figure. In a book filled with a lot of colorful characters uh, and a lot of different different aspects of this story, uh, I'm wondering if there's uh, if there's a, a couple you might relate to. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think actually for me, less Greeley because um, I, I don't really consider myself an expedition leader type. But um, as a hunter and backcountry. Um, expeditioner myself, I, I really found that uh, Lockwood, well, Lieutenants Lockwood and Brainerd, who were the two men who were tasked to go find 
uh, or make it to farthest north and um, were guys that I really got into because of their um, their courage and their um, their daring do and their ability to say, look, we're going to go out on a on a two month long exploration to try to make it to the North Pole when no one had ever been there before. Yeah. I thought those guys were just badass. And then, <laughs> of course, George Rice, the photographer, uh, he was also one of the men who was doing a lot of the forays and exploration. And so those guys, to me, were, um, you know, like sort of historical badasses. <laughs> Your book has quite a few pictures taken by Rice and others up in the north, and some of them are, I mean, these iceberg pictures and the like, some of them are pretty jaw-dropping. Uh, I'm wondering, you've been up to Greenland and visited. Uh, uh, does it still look like that? Well, I tell you what, it does. Um, you know, Greenland is... Um, Greenland and Ellsbury Island areas that are still incredibly remote and difficult to get to. And I spent uh, about 10 days, I think, on Greenland. And, you know, there are times where you stand on top of a four or 5,000-foot peak and you, you, there's just nothing. I mean, nothing, no people, no no civilization uh, as far as you can see, you know, and just just peaks and, um, and glaciers and huge scoured-out valleys. Um, but then, of course, on the on the shorelines and stuff, there during particular seasons, the, it, the place comes to life with with shorebirds and um, and and also sea life. So it's not it's not desolate in that way. But um, certainly, the people who live there uh, are expert at carving out a life in a in a pretty hostile place. I'd, I'd like to visit someday. That's kind of why one <laughs> subplot to my it, asking. Yeah. I'd love to go see Greenland. It sounds very interesting. But my final question, I guess, today would be that, you know, you've got a lot of different interests out there, a lot of things you've been involved with. What is in your pipeline for future writings and some of the, the film and television productions that you're involved with? Ah, oh, that's a great question. I'm actually um, poking around with some more Arctic uh, stories currently that I'm just, uh, there, there, there seems to be... Um, no end to the adventure up there <laughs> and down south too but um, also I'm really fascinated with the with mountain men and um, you know the the settling of the American West so uh, I guess exploration and adventure generally I, I probably will stick stick in that theme for a little while and Good then deal. as far as the film and television um, we're currently trying to get some interest in uh, Labyrinth of Ice because it's just one hell of a tale. <laughs> Indeed it is. We would remind listeners, the book is Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition. We've been speaking with author Buddy Levy about it. I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to want to know more about the book and, and some of your other works. So uh, can you direct us to your websites? You betcha. That would be www.buddylevy.com. Very good, sir. Great book. Thank you for speaking with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a, pro a pleasure. Anyway, in the three minutes or so that we have left, I wanted to say at least one good thing about President Donald Trump. We've had presidents in the past that were almost as big of fools, almost as dishonest, and almost as ignorant. But with Trump, you win the trifecta. Last week, this Bozo's administration ended federal protection for many of the nation's millions of miles of streams, arroyos, and wetlands. A sweeping environmental rollback that could leave the waterways more vulnerable to pollution from development, industry, and farms. These rules have long been sought by real estate developers and oil companies. I don't know which plays a greater role in that, ignorance or criminality. We are still amazed that Trump could have possibly said to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, it's not like you've got China on your border. 
Despite the fact that the nations share 2,500 miles of shared frontier, in which they've almost gone to war over three times. I knew that when I was 10. Apparently still news to the 45th president. He's a bad guy. I hope they impeach him. But I do want to say that he did get it right on the new visa rules for pregnant women on birth tourism. Trump's regulations are seeking to chip away at the number of foreigners who take advantage of the constitutional provision granting birthright citizenship to anyone born in the U.S., which has been a particular peeve of Donald Trump. Under these new rules, pregnant applicants will be denied a tourist visa unless they can prove they must come to the U.S. to give birth for medical reasons and they have money to pay for it. Wait a minute. All these women in China have money to pay for it. Good God. Or it says, have another compelling reason, not just because they want to have their child to have an American passport. My God, I have to stop myself in mid-sentence, read the article that I was praising, and realize that, well, maybe this is worse than I thought. I guess it's the and in the provision that makes the difference. They must come to the U.S. to give birth for medical reasons and have money to pay for it. Of course, I, I am aware of the fact that there are doctors out there who can be bribed to say, yes, this woman does need to come here for medical reasons. Or, alternatively, yes, this young man does have bone spurs. Anyway, the U.S. State Department is now saying it does not believe that visiting the United States for the primary purpose of obtaining U.S. citizenship for a child by giving birth in the United States, an activity commonly referred to as birth tourism, is a legitimate activity for pleasure or of a recreational nature, according to the new rules. Anyway, I'm a little surprised to find myself siding with Donald Trump on this one, but you know, even a stopped clock can be right twice a day. That pretty much does it for time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who has been known in the past to be right more, in fact, than twice a day which is especially surprising given the fact that he's still using the Julian calendar. Our thanks again to Professor Buddy Levy. That was fun. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.